Genesis 16, verses 1 to, uh, verse 1 to 6. 16, 1 to 6. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are mindful of the fact that this is your word, your holy word, written by your servant, the prophet Moses, about the father of our faith, Abraham. Lord, these words are not here accidentally. They are here for our understanding of salvation, our understanding of the gospel, and what you've done in the life of Abraham, Sarah, and others, and how that relates to us, not only for our salvation, but also for our sanctification, our growth in godliness. Teach us now from your word and enable us to understand it, enable us to adhere to it, to believe it, and to grow in the faith. We ask in Christ's name, amen. In the previous chapter, Abraham had had a concern about his descendants. And now still in chapter 16 and following, there is a concern about his descendants, his physical descendants, because Abraham knows in the promises of God, in the mind of God, that what God promised to Abraham was for Christ to be born through him, through his lineage, Christ to be born in the world, But for Christ to be born in the world, to be the Savior of the world, there needs to be the birth of many people, physical descendants of Abraham. And then once the physical descendants are in the world and Christ, the most important of all the physical descendants of Abraham born, that through Christ and his redemption, there will will be among the nations of the world many spiritual descendants. These are the promises that Abraham knew. These are the promises that Abraham believed, that Christ would come into the world to die for his sins, and that Abraham would be this model and example of the faithful to subsequent generations. Now, even though in chapter 15, God told Abraham that he would have this, that this would happen, that someone from his own loins would come forth, Look at chapter 15, verses verses 1 to 4, to establish this fact that someone from his loins would come forth. 15.1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring to me, Um, One born in my house is my heir. 
Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. One from his own body will be his heir. Now, chapter 16 starts by saying, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. No children. We know from chapter 11, verse 30, earlier in Abraham's life, it says about Abraham and his wife, And Sarai was barren, she had no child. Chapter 11, verse 30. This is the concern in the preceding chapter, the verses we just read. Abraham knows that this is a problem for the promises of God to be fulfilled. God must do something to give him a child so that that child, not only a child, but a son, so that through that son, he would have many physical descendants, the most important one, Christ, so that the nations of the earth will be blessed by faith in Christ. This is what needs to happen. But Chapter 16 starts by saying, there's no children, no children. And we know from chapter 16, verse 16, that when Abram was 86 years old, Hagar bore Ishmael to him. From that we know. And so we know that he had been in this land, as it will say also in verse 3, he lived there in the land of Canaan 10 years and still nothing is happening. That means that Sarah was barren for the first 75 years of Abraham's life, however long they were married. To the age of 75, Abraham was saying she was barren. She was 65. She was barren. Now, Abraham is 85, and she is 75, and she's still barren. Still nothing. So what about this promise? That's why chapter 16, verse 1 starts, there's no children born from Sarah. No children born from Sarah. Now keep in mind that it's not until chapter 17 that God actually specifies and tells Abraham years later, years later, when he's 99 years old, that's when chapter 17 is, when he's 99 years old, God tells Abraham and Sarah, that it's going to be Abraham and Sarah coming together as husband and wife, and it is the son who was born in that union that will be the son of promise. So this means chapter 16 is years before that. It's about 15 years before that, and now this dilemma is on their mind. So chapter 16, verse 1, and she, Sarah, had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar, an Egyptian maid. Now, this maid may have been one of the many slaves. When it says maid, it means a female slave. That's what it means when it says maid. It may have been one of the many that Abraham and Sarah already owned because it says in chapter 12, when Abraham left Ur of the Chaldeans and then came to Haran and then came to the land of Canaan. It says in chapter 12, verse 5, And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons, people, which they had acquired in Haran. And then they came to Canaan. So they owned people. They owned slaves. They were masters and mistresses of 
slaves. And this might be when Abraham acquired Hagar. Abraham and Sarah acquired Hagar. And notice it says specifically she's an Egyptian. Now, if it did not happen then, it would have happened by chapter 12, verse 16. Chapter 12, verse 16, because when Abraham and family went into Egypt because of a famine in Canaan, they stayed there for a short time, and then the Pharaoh sent Abraham and everyone back home to Canaan, and notice what it says in 12.16. Therefore, he, Pharaoh, treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants or slaves and female donkeys and camels. At one of these two times likely is when Hagar was given to Sarah. Now notice, I said it that way. She had an Egyptian maid. She had an Egyptian maid. Why does it say she had, not Abraham had? Why does it say it that way? She had. And now, of these interpretations I, I gave you, I think the first one is probably more likely because of what I'm about to say. That is, sometime in the past, likely when Abraham and Sarah first married, she brought a maid into the marriage. Notice, why do I say that? Chapter 24, chapter 24, verse 59. Chapter 24, verse 59. The servant of Abraham finds a wife for Isaac. He finds Rebekah. And then when, when Rebekah is coming from Haran to Canaan to meet Isaac and to marry him, it says this, 24.59, Genesis 24.59, Thus, they sent away their sister Rebekah and her nurse with Abraham's servant and his men. Nurse and Abraham's servants, well, with Abraham's servant and his men. That's one example. The next example is, she, the same one in chapter, in Genesis chapter 20, um, 35, verse 8. Genesis 35 and verse 8. 35, 8. Now, Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the oak. It was named Alon Baku. Now, now we know what the name was of Rebekah's nurse, Deborah. That was her name. One more place to go. Chapter 30. Chapter 30. From these examples of Rebecca having Deborah as a nurse, or I will say as a maid, it has to do with not only helping in the household affairs, but also the potential of marriage. Chapter 30. Chapter 30, verse 1. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children, or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And she said, Here is my maid, Bilhah. Here, she said, it's her proposal, right? She said, Here is my maid, Bilhah. Go into her. 
that she may bear on my knees that through her I too may have children. Do you see that? She has a maid, a female slave, Bilhah, and she's the one that proposes to Jacob to marry her also, verse 4. So she, Rachel, gave him, Jacob, her maid Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me, and has indeed heard my voice, and has given me a son. Therefore she named him Dan. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again, and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and I have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw, now the, the other sister, the older sister, when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid, Leah took her maid, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, how fortunate. So she named him Gad. And Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, happy am I, for women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. You see in these examples, it seems as though from the time of marriage or sometime soon after that, a maid or female slave was acquired, and when the wife, the first wife, did not bear, after some time, it was up to the wife, Rachel, Leah, or in this case, Sarah, to determine and decide if it's necessary for the female slave to marry the husband and the children there born uh, coming from that union would belong to the first wife, not the female slave. That's what's happening here, I think. That's why it tells us she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. Therefore, verse 2. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. That's true, right? Yeah. We learned that from chapter 30. Am I in the place of God? And we know that from other places in Scripture that it is God who gives the blessing of the fruit of the womb, right? Yeah. The fruit of the womb from other places in Scripture, we know that to be the case. Such as here, we, we read chapter 30, in the book of Ruth, when the people are praising the marriage of Boaz and Ruth, they say, may the Lord give to Ruth. May the Lord give. May the Lord grant a son to build up the house. Right? To build up the name and the house and the lineage. That's what's there. And even in 1 Samuel, um, Elkanah had a wife, Penina and Hannah. Hannah did not have children. Penina did. And... Hannah, in that case, she prayed and she prayed, and finally the Lord answered and gave her children, sons and daughters. Yeah. So the Lord is the ultimate origin of the blessing of children. Yes. The, the near or proximate means is marriage of husband and wife, but the ultimate means, the effective means, is a gift from heaven that blesses the marriage. This comes from God. Now, Sarah, I say this to say that Sarah, I don't think, is complaining. She's acknowledging a fact and then what we need to do because of this fact. 
I think that's really what she's doing. I don't think she's griping and complaining. I don't think she's bitter. I think she's explaining the reality and then now what we must do based on this reality. I believe that's what is happening. So, then, please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children through her. Is that not what Rachel and Leah also said in chapter 30? Genesis 30, 1 to 13, they said the same thing. That that was the means of acquiring children and an inheritance, uh, or not an inheritance, an heir for the family was that way when the wife, the main wife, the first wife, did not bear children. Next, it says in verse 2, And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. In this verse, it does not state clearly, just from that sentence, whether Abraham sinned in obeying his wife or whether he did not sin in obeying his wife. It does not say clearly whether he did sin or did not sin. This phrase occurs both ways in the book of Genesis, in the positive and in the negative. First, the negative, Genesis 3, Genesis 3, 17. Listening to the voice of the wife. Listening to the voice of the wife. First, the negative in Genesis 3, 17, where it says, Then to Adam he, God, said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. In that case, it was a negative. It was a sin to listen to the voice of the wife. Adam did that, and it is very clear, because sin entered the world, the curse because of sin and, and death, the curse of death, entered the world. That's a sinful negative example. However, we do have a positive example. Chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. Now this positive example is quite instructive for us because I think it has a bearing on chapter 16. Why? Because if you were to think of this circumstance, this <coughs> dilemma, this conflict, you perhaps, or the average interpreter perhaps, would not conclude the way the passage concludes. Okay? Now, what hap happens in Genesis 21? Isaac is born. He, he's weaned, and there's a, a festival for him being weaned. And then it says in verse 8, 21.8, And the child, that's Isaac, grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Mocking or persecuting, according to Galatians chapter 4, verse 29. Galatians 4, 29 quotes this and calls it persecution. So this mockery wasn't playful laughing or anything like that. A little give and take that brothers do, older brother, younger brother. It's not like that. It was something very severe. The Hebrew word translated by the NASB is mocking. If your Bible says laughing, then it is, I think, not bringing out the, the true evilness of it. Okay? So it should say mocking, or as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 4.29, when he quotes this passage, 
4, 21 to 31 of Galatians, he explains all of this related to Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, and Ishmael. 4, 21 to 31 of Galatians. And there he clearly says that Ishmael persecuted Isaac. He persecuted Isaac, which is at the very least verbal, if not physical. Okay? Keep that in mind. That will help to explain the reaction to it. So Sarah saw this happening, verse 9 says, verse 10. Therefore, she, Sarah, said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. Notice it's a matter of the inheritance. That's why the Apostle Paul says that this mockery was such a mockery that either there was the threat of death verbally or physically it was about to happen. And the heir was going to be jeopardized. Who the heir was was about to be jeopardized. That's why she says, drive him out. He can't live here. He has to live away from us before he perpetrates this evil against Isaac. Um, or against Isaac. Uh, verse 11. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. Listen to her. God said, For through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid I will make a nation also because he is your descendant. Then Abraham obeys. Now, in that case, Sarah knew what righteousness was. Sarah knew the will of God. Sarah knew to tell her husband the right thing. He hesitated. And then God confirmed it to Abraham. Listen to Sarah. What Sarah told you is my will. Do what she told you. Then Abraham does it. Would we have said, if we had two sons in the house, would we have said, that son and the mother needs, need to be driven out? Go away. We wouldn't have had that reaction. We would have had this um, tolerance to the nth degree mentality, which is common in our culture. Right? Yeah. We would have had that to the nth degree. But that's not what happened there. Now go back to chapter 16. We would not have thought of doing this. What happens in chapter 16? We would not think of it. And because it's so foreign to our thinking, I think interpreters have approached this passage with tremendous suspicion. Mm -hmm. Tremendous suspicion against Sarah and Abraham. Against Sarah and Abraham. They impugn them with gross sin. Now, I read two commentators on this passage. One commentator briefly mentioned that it was wrong or sinful for Sarah to do this. But he didn't focus on it, and he just went and explained the rest of the passage. And he explained it, uh, explained it uh, matter of fact, forthrightly, as to what was happening. He did that. But I read another commentator who could not let up. He could not let up. On and on and on, verse after verse after verse, he kept on saying that Abraham and Sarah sinned tremendously. I'm summarizing. Sinned tremendously, egregiously in this way. And much of what happens in this chapter shows the weakness of the flesh. 
even the weakness of the flesh of saints, Abraham and Sarah. Now, this commentator, so much was he consumed by looking for negativity in this passage. Notice at verse 3, it says that, And after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, which we've gone through, now he's 85 years old. So that means that they waited a long time. Abram's wife, Sarah, Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her mate, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. So clearly, it's the actions of Sarah. Sarah is the active party here. Abraham, in terms of arranging this, is the passive party. Now, he could have passively sinned, I grant that. But I'm illustrating the commentator's mentality. His mentality was so negative of this whole series of incidents here that when it says, gave her to her husband Abram as his wife, doesn't the text say wife? When we read chapter 31 to 13, did it not say as a wife, as a wife? Yes. So this was not a one night stand. This was not fornication. This was was not for lust and sexual pleasure, willy-nilly here and there. It wasn't like that. It was as a wife. And this commentator, though he is a very good commentator in many ways, his interpretation was so corrupted by his perspective on this that he says that the scripture here improperly, improperly, that was his word, improperly calls Hagar Abram's wife. But when I read it, the Holy Spirit, under Moses, uh, by Moses' hand, says, gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He acknowledged that the text actually does say wife, but he says that the text improperly says wife. <clears throat> now that's how dangerous it is. I'm trying to illustrate how dangerous it is for us to come with certain presuppositions to the Bible. When we don't properly interpret and contemplate what all of Scripture says about a given issue, and we let our minds race, let our emotions race, we will handle the Word of God incorrectly and even say this part is in error. Because when he says that, though he didn't say explicitly, Moses was in error to say that, or the Holy Spirit did not write this verse. He didn't say it that way. He does say that the text improperly calls her Abraham's wife. That can't be. Right. Okay? We can't do that. We should not do that. We should not never do that. And we need to be so open about what we believe and what the Bible says that we have iron sharpening iron so one man sharpens another. Right. Proverbs 27, 17. We should have that mentality and use the analogy of Scripture. That is the comparison of one Scripture to another Scripture to ensure that we're not misinterpreting the passage. Amen. Now, one more point I'd like to make about this. You may recall that in an earlier lesson we showed you from Romans chapter 4 about the faith of Abraham. This same commentator was constantly talking about how Abraham was wayward. 
Abraham and Sarah. They were wayward. They were wavering. This was a gross sin. He uses words like this, okay, like these, to describe Abraham and Sarah. But notice in Genesis, uh, sorry, Romans 4, Romans 4, 18, what the Apostle Paul says about Abraham. Romans 4, 18. In hope against hope, he believed, in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in flesh, uh, in, in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Able also to perform. Notice in 4.18, so shall your descendants be is a quote from Genesis 15.5. 15.5, years before chapter 16. In 15.5, so shall your descendants be, Abraham believed that. And he believed it so much that Paul describes it as without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So he's not only incorporating Genesis 15.5, which was before our passage of Genesis 16, but he's also incorporating chapter 17, when Abraham was almost a hundred years old. Right. Or when he was a hundred, Isaac was born. But before that, one year before, God promised that Abraham and Sarah would have Isaac. So that whole period, Paul has in mind when he says, without becoming weak in faith, 20, with respect to the promise, he did not waver in unbelief, grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, 21, being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Okay, so that's clear of Abraham. But what about Sarah? Sarah 2, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 and verse 11. Hebrews 11 and verse 11. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Here, this faith of Sarah, she received ability to conceive. Now, I grant that this is making a, a reference to chapter 17 and chapter 21, 17 and 21 of Genesis, that the promise was delivered and specified that it would be Sarah who would bear, and then finally Sarah does bear in chapter 21. Yes, that's what Hebrews 11, 11 is, but at least this verse is saying, that she was a godly woman or a woman of faith. Right. Correct? That she was a woman of faith. Remember, in Genesis 15, God, and even in 16, God did not specify that Sarah was the one who was going to bear. So Sarah, in her mind, would have been thinking, if I haven't born so far, then 
it's likely, or maybe it is God who is saying that it should be through Hagar. Because the only thing he's told them so far is chapter 15, no, your own, through your own loins, Abraham, your own loins, your own loins, but he did not specify Sarah, your own loins. Up to that part, Abraham was concerned, I don't have a descendant, that's my default, we should have descendants, but if I don't have a descendant, then Eliezer of Damascus can be. And then God says, no, 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 not Eliezer, it's going to be through your own loins. Chapter 16, they're thinking, okay, through Abraham's loins, but through Hagar, no, that's not it. Chapter 17, through Sarah. And her godliness, generally speaking, is evidenced in 1 Peter 3. That's where I'm going. 1 Peter 3, Sarah's godliness, generally speaking, her faith and godliness, generally speaking, not only before, during, and after she gave birth to Isaac. Okay? Not only at that period. 1 Peter 3, verse 1. 3, 1 to 6. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. That's the way wives should be. Christian wives should be. Why? Five. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. The women did. And a specific woman, verse 6, Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children, if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. So Abraham, um, Abraham and Sarah, Sarah's faith, manifested in the way that she treated her husband. Yeah. It's said here to be a woman of faith, one who hoped in God, one who had chaste and respectful behavior, who obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And she wasn't frightened by any fear. That's the kind of wife Sarah was. Of course, after her conversion. And everybody, whatever we're saying, we're talking about after their conversion. Now, for these reasons, I think we have to be very careful and not come to this passage and just quickly, rashly, willy-nilly, impugn Abraham and Sarah of sin. Amen. We have to be very careful. Now, whether they did sin in this case or not, we can discuss this later during the Q&A session. I've got some examples to present as to why I don't think that they did sin. But even if you do think they sinned here, please don't treat them uh, like a punching bag when you come to this chapter. Don't do that. Because it may lead you to see uh, or to misinterpret not only one verse, but several verses in this chapter. Okay? Now, verse 4. Genesis 16, verse 4. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. Mistress was despised in her sight. Now, the marriage takes place, and she conceives. Hagar conceives, and notice this expression, her mistress 
Now, we're, we're using the word mistress in terms of master and mistress, in terms of master and slave relationship. We're not using the word mistress in the way it is often used today as though there's an adulteress or a secret adulteress that some man has. That's not the way the Bible is using the word here. Mistress here means the female master of the woman or the female slaves, okay? So that's what Sarah was, and it says here, her mistress was despised in her sight. Hagar despised Sarah. She is the slave, and she despises her mistress, Sarah. Her mistress was the one who granted her the privilege of marrying Abraham and bearing a, a child, a son to Abraham. Her mistress is the one who has been supplying her needs, who's been taking care of her, her maintenance and everything. Her mistress has been doing all this. So Sarah has been good and kind, even if we look at it in terms of earthly circumstances. She's a slave, yeah, but she's not a slave being tortured and beaten up and raped and murdered. She's not being a slave like that. She's a slave in a good household, in a household of the faith. And she's being treated kindly, justly, righteously. That's the way she's being treated. And yet, this favor and grace of God, remember verse 2, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, but she did not, or, uh, God did not prevent Hagar from bearing. Uh, presumably, she quickly bore a son to Abraham. Yeah. And yet, she did not recognize God's grace in that. But she thought that she... The, the subordinate was superior to her own supervisor and mistress. That's what she thought. So this is showing a very uh, ingrat uh, ungrateful heart, an ingratitude, an attitude of ingratitude in her. That's what it's showing. So this is more egregious than at first reading. If you read this verse superficially, You'll say, oh, well, there's a little bit of jealousy going on, feminine jealousy in the household. That's what's going on, and that's all that it is. No, it's more serious than that. If you think about the implications and the context, it's more serious than that. And because of it, that explains Sarah's response. Verse 5, 5 and 6. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, literally into your bosom, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now, at first reading, superficial reading again, verse 5, May the wrong done me be upon you. Why is Sarah so much against Abraham? I gave my maid into your bosom, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. Why is Sarah so strong and hard against Abraham? Because Abraham didn't do anything about it. He should have on his own done something about it. But he didn't do anything about it because he was slow to act Similar to what we saw in Genesis 21, he was slow to act 
to send out Hagar and Ishmael from the house, God had to intervene and tell him to do so. Listen to the voice of your wife to do so. And I think that's what's happening here too. Abraham knows that this is going on, and Abraham, for whatever reason, he's slow to act, and Sarah confronts him and calls on God to judge between them. Now, Abraham, you're slow to act in this regard in matters of justice. You should know better, right? He should know better because he said in 1825, will not the judge of all the earth do justly? Abraham knew that about God, but he wasn't acting in the circumstance, in the family, in a just and righteous way. So she confronts him on that and warns him, even to Abraham, that if you don't practice justice in the family, God will judge you. She doesn't have a superior, aside from her own husband, to intervene, so she calls on God, because the head of every man is Christ, as it says in 1 Corinthians 11. Yes, the head of... The woman is the man, but the head of every man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 1 to 3. So... There, she called upon the Lord in a right way to promote the fear of God in Abraham. Because the men of faith do not want the judgment of God on their head, right? Right. Because that's one of our motivations. One of our motivations to love or to obey God is the fear of God. The second motivation is to love God. The love of God and the fear of God. Love toward God and fear toward God are, are dual motivations to obey Him. Right. But all of this, keeping in mind the glory of God. We do it for the glory of God. So, she knew all this, and she has to confront Abraham. And that's why, verse 6, Abraham knows his role in this. It's not as though we're reading into the text. Abraham knows his role because he says in 6, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. You're right, Sarah. I didn't act. Now I'm giving you authority. Go ahead and act and do whatever is necessary. Discipline her. Punish her. Judge her. And what does she do? So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now, think for a moment. It says harshly, but harsh in what sense? Was it harsh and excessive, or was it harsh and justified? Was it harsh and excessive, or harsh and justified? Well, I believe it was harsh and justified. And we know because later, the Lord tells her, to go back. In our very chapter, the Lord tells her to go back. So even the Lord thought that you were treated harshly, you fled from your mistress, Sarah, but you need to go back to Sarah because it was not a justifiable reason. That's why he's saying go back. We will explore that some more. But notice this distinction I'm making between harsh treatment from master to slave, whether it is justifiable or unjustifiable. 1 Peter 2 18. 1 Peter 2, 18. 1 Peter 2, 18. 18 to 20. 
servants or slaves. Be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. What do we have in our scenario in 1 Peter? We have two scenarios. You might be practicing righteousness, and then your master treats you harshly. If you patiently endure that harsh treatment when you were behaving righteously, then that's good. That's the will of God, and God will reward you for that. But then, what if you sin and the master treats you harshly and you bear with it? Is God going to say, great job? No. No, according, not, not according to this verse. He's not going to say, great job. If you sinned and he treated you harshly and then you stayed there with the master because you sinned against him and he had to punish you, treated you harshly, he punished you, and you endured it, well, then you just endured what you deserved to get. Right, yeah. See the d- distinction. Harsh treatment, deserved or undeserved? That's the real issue. W- was it deserved or undeserved? And because the Lord tells her later, Hagar later, in the, our chapter, Genesis 16, to return to your mistress, Sarah, it must have meant that she was treated Harshly, but justly. And she should have just bore with it and stayed there instead of fleeing from her. Right. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.